All right, uh, so we had uh, Holy Week and Palm Sunday and Easter, and uh, uh, it interrupted a series that we started a number of weeks back on the idea of the unity of the church. And uh, some of you have forgotten that that was a, was a series that we started, and I understand how that can be. So let's quickly catch up and talk about where we've been in those weeks preceding Palm Sunday. We started out in John chapter 17, the final prayer of Jesus, and thought specifically about that part of the prayer where he prays for the unity of his disciples. And the uh, important thing to see is not only that he is so concerned about that right before he goes to the cross and, and offers up his life for us, but that he ties this unity to the effectiveness of his church in proclaiming the gospel. So he says, I, I pray, Father, that they may be one as you and I are one, so that the world may believe. And, uh, and so we remind ourselves that unity from Jesus' point of view, is not just a feel-good idea, that we, that we have a nice club of people that are comfortable and enjoy being with one another. Uh, you know, the gospel always calls us outside of ourselves. And so unity, while it is a great blessing to be one together, unity has this larger purpose in the plan of God uh, and the program of the gospel, that people may believe. People, I think, Francis Schaeffer said this 50 years ago, uh, the world legitimately evaluates the truthfulness of gospel claims on the basis of how we live together. Right? John chapter 13, Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And of course, love and unity theme go together. All right, so then we went to Ephesians chapter 4, the opening verses, and here the apostle Paul calls upon believers to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit's through the bond of peace. Make every effort, and we reminded ourselves, among other things, that, that this is not an easy challenge that is put before us. Right? That's, why, that's why we have to maintain every effort to do it. And then uh, Todd talked to us for two weeks about a whole bunch of different issues related to the idea of truth. Even in that prayer that Jesus prayed, he, he prays to the Father to sanctify his disciples through the truth. Your word is truth. Well, that leads to all sorts of uh, interesting and challenging questions about how does truth play into our unity? And, uh, and, and Todd talked to us then about the importance of understanding that truth has different levels. 
you remember that. So <clears throat> there's, the, there's the level of, we sometimes call them absolutes or dogmas. They are the things that everybody who's a Christian <clears throat> agrees upon, uh, which is a relatively small number of things, actually. Uh, kinds of things that are summarized in the, uh, say, the Apostles' Creed, uh, what we might call fundamentals of the faith. So that's one level. There's another level beyond, below that, which uh, <clears throat> I think he called doctrines. These are understandings of scriptural truth that are characteristic not just of an individual, not just a private opinion, but, say, a, a group of Christians. So so Lutherans, for example, <clears throat> would have certain distinctive understandings of the faith, and Presbyterians, and Independents, and Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, right? These, <clears throat> these are doctrinal differences that are, you might say they're like family differences. And then there's a third area, which is the level of... Uh, <clears throat> opinion. And they, those tend to be more private and uh, of lesser consequence. Now, why, why a distinction like that is helpful and important, uh, I think, if we're going to be diligent to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why it's important is <clears throat> that a mistake that is often made in the history of the church is that people <clears throat> identify things which say are in that lowest category, opinion, and they make them into absolutes. <clears throat> now when you do that, you're headed for big trouble. That, that becomes very divisive. And there's all kinds of illustrations like that. Some of them you've lived through. <clears throat> Uh, how, about, how about the big debate that Christians had over which Bible version was the true and faithful Bible version? And back in the day, there were a substantial number of Christians who said, uh, the King James Version, 1618, that's the true word of God. Makes you wonder what they did for the preceding 15 centuries, right? But, uh, but that's the true word of God. And if you're going to be a faithful Christian, that's what you need to, that's what you need to read. And, uh, and churches were split over that. There's, there's still a few churches around like that. And they not only insist that people work from... King James Version, but they preach from it and they preach about it, that that's what it means to be a faithful Christian. Well, see, it's quite one thing for somebody to say, you know, I love the, the poetic beauty of Elizabethan English, and therefore I love the King James Version, that's what I want to read. That's, that's a perfectly legitimate private opinion. But if we begun, begin to move that up into the level of doctrine or perish of thought, even to a kind of absolute that this is what true Christians do, 
That's disastrous. That's divisive. That's destructive of unity. How about the worship wars back in the 70s, 80s, right? Where congregations divided over opinions about what was the right kind of music. Uh, boy, you can go on and on. And then there was the, the charismatic debates of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Huh? Could somebody speak in tongues? Was that even appropriate? Or was that even, as some you know, major teachers suggested, to speak in tongues was from the devil? So things got exalted to doctrinal or even absolute status, and it became quite uh, divisive. All right, so that's where we've been so far. Today, uh, I want to move on to a section of Scripture which has a lot to do with unity. It's not exclusively that, but it has a lot to do with it, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, and that will occupy us for a number of weeks here. So today... We want to look at chapter 12, and the basic theme of chapter 12 is there is one body. So as we think about the unity of the church, there's a powerful metaphor in Scripture, picture language, right? And the picture is that the church is like a body, and Paul is going to lay out certain truths about even our physical bodies as an analogy for us to think about the nature of the church and the oneness of the church. So there is one body, says Paul. Follow along as I read. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but... In all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers, to another, prophecy, to another, distinguishing between spirits, to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. 
If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? And of course, the implied answer to all those questions is no. Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. All right, well, uh, extended uh, discussion here by Paul. Let's uh, tease out a few of the key ideas, shall we? First, it's this. The body image for Paul has, I, I guess, one overriding teaching for us. And that is that the unity of the church is a unity in diversity. That's how our bodies function. That's the point he makes all different ways, right? The body isn't just an ear. It's not just an eye. Uh, The body cares for itself. There's unity in diversity. And this unity in diversity for Paul is founded ultimately in the nature of God himself. It's like the unity in the Trinity. And uh, so you may have noticed that as we uh, read this section. Let me get that text in front of us. Verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Uh, That, if if you recall, back to Ephesians chapter 4, is exactly what he does when he talks about unity there. Remember, he says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then what does he say? He says, there's one body, there's one Spirit, just as you were all called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Seven great realities. Three of them are Spirit, Son, 
and Father. And even the order he repeats here in 1 Corinthians. The same kind of move. There's one spirit who distributes different kinds of gifts, one Lord who distributes different kinds of service, and one God, the Father, presumably, who works in a variety of ways. So the Trinity is where Paul starts in thinking about unity. He doesn't start with the body. That's just an illustration. He starts with the nature of God himself. And that nature is unity in diversity. We've defined uh, the Trinity previously as that eternal fellowship of love, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three, and uh, you may have seen this kind of a diagram before. It's, it's helpful in thinking about the basic way that the church has come to talk about God, the three-in-one God. So, there's one God who is Father and Spirit and Son. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But they're not, they're not one, uh, they're not three gods, they are one God. That's the way the Athanasian Creed says it. But then as you go around the perimeter of this uh, hexagon, the Father is not the Spirit, and the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is neither the Father or the Son. There is difference at the same time that there is unity, and that's rooted in the nature of God himself. You say, well, if each is God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, what's the difference between them? And uh, that one we're not going to answer. That is a very long, deep discussion in the history of theology. I mean, there's some things you can say very simply and obviously. For example, the Son is the only of the three that is incarnate. So that's a difference. But we uh, we won't go any further into that. But simply to notice that that in the basis of all reality, which is God himself, there's both unity and there's diversity. And that becomes a model for the church. Now, having said that, we'll we'll push it a little bit further, or Paul pushes it a little bit further. It's not only that there is or ought to be unity and diversity, but Actually, unity needs diversity. And that's part of what Paul is pushing with his analogy of the body. He's got all those questions he asks, you know. For example, uh, think about whether the, uh, the body is just an eye. Well, that would be pretty grotesque. Or... What if, what if the whole body is an ear? It looks pretty interesting, that guy, actually. But, but it's no less grotesque, right? And the point is that within the church, there is difference among the members, 
And that is actually needed for unity. Now, sometimes people confuse unity with uniformity. Uniformity would be inclined to think, well, everybody in the church needs to be an ear. We need to to look alike. It's a cookie-cutter understanding of the way the body operates. Paul says, no, uh, diversity is rooted in the character of God, and it is necessary. Have you ever heard about the founder effect? It's a... uh, It's a recognized uh, principle in genetics. Uh, I don't know much about genetics, uh, except that uh, my grandfather was bald, and I'm going bald. (laughs) I get that, right? Uh, But uh, the founder effect is something like this. If you have a, a a diverse population, and for simplicity here, our diverse population is not very diverse. It's, it's 20 blues and 10 reds. Uh, don't make that political. Uh, let's think about, uh, let's think about uh, blues being blue-eyed and blonde hair, okay? And think about reds as being redheaded. And so there's a certain distribution of those kinds of people in uh, a larger population. But now suppose in this population of 20 blue and 10 red, we select a small number of people and we say to them, okay, your job is to go off and colonize a new world or colonize this island where nobody's lived before and four of them leave to found the new civilization or whatever, right? This is the founder effect. The founders are the people who are leaving and going elsewhere. But it turns out that of those four, three of them are redheads and one of them's a blue head. Blue eyes, blonde hair. Now you see what has happened. In the original population, 10% are red. But in the new population, 75% are red. That's going to skew the genetics, right? Going to change the, uh, the gene pool for that new group. Now, what often happens, why this is so serious, what often happens is that when you get this sort of a movement with a, a restricted, especially if it's a restricted group that is founded, it's isolated in one way or another, what you will often find is that certain genetic abnormalities become more prevalent prevalent in the founder group. So this this is the problem of inbreeding. There's there's some classic examples of this in the uh, the Amish community, not far from here. Certain, uh, Certain genetic abnormalities, like six fingers on the hand, some of those kinds of things, and, and it's a result of this founder effect. It's not that those things can't occur in a larger population, but they occur with greater frequency in this founders group because it's restricted. Uh, you may know this about the Mennonites. They have never had any new genetic carriers 
become part of the Mennonites since 1860. So what you've got is a relatively small community with no outside input. Classic example of the founder's effect. Now why is that important? Well, come back to what we're saying about the unity of the church. Unity needs diversity to be healthy. Various groups, uh, and sometimes it, it, it can be I think it can be more frequent in conservative churches. What you get is kind of a spiritual founder's effect. I have a friend that, that talked about some churches as being intellectually or spiritually Amish. You get what he was saying? He was saying from a spiritual standpoint, it's possible for churches to become very ingrown. And when they do, it's almost always unhealthy. So even though, say, we're an independent church, we we need those connections with the broader church in terms of how we understand our faith, because the danger is the founder's effect can hit us spiritually. Unity needs diversity. Now, that can feel counterintuitive, because, you know, sometimes we're bumping into new ideas, and, and we, we say, wow, this, this is unsettling, because this is what I thought was the case, and now I'm hearing somebody else suggest a different idea, and yeah, but that is actually healthy. It stretches us, if we know how to deal with it. Now, if if it just makes us fearful, then, you know, then that can be problematic. But if we can welcome that sort of incursion of fresh, what, fresh spiritual DNA from the larger church, that's actually healthy. So unity needs diversity and and then just to drive it home, we need to see that that diversity is there by God's intention. It's difference by design, namely by God's design. What does he say in verse 18? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Diversity by design. The French phrase is vive la différence, which is often used humorously to talk about the differences between men and women, right? Uh, They're different. Vive la différence. Let let the differences abound, you know, let them live. Well, I think we need to say the same thing about the church. God has placed diversity in the church for our health. Once again, it doesn't, it doesn't sometimes feel like that because, because when I get challenged or, you know, when I hear a different idea, I can start thinking, uh, that person needs to be quiet. Or, 
I think they're just being uh, perverse to come at things the direction they are, right? Well, uh, we start out saying there's unity and diversity that's rooted in the character of God and it's by his design. So if that's the case then, how should we, how should we live out life in the body with this diversity? How, how can we embrace it? A couple, uh, couple notes here. One, I think we can only do it as we depend upon the Spirit of God. In verse 13, Paul says, it's in one Spirit that we were all baptized into the body of Christ. <clears throat> the baptism with the Holy Spirit, I don't think it's baptism by the Spirit, I think it's with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is the baptizer. That's what John the Baptist said. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. When does that take place? Well, it takes place at Pentecost. The Spirit descends upon the church, and from there on, the church is understood to be the, what, the, the container, if you will, that houses the Spirit. It's the place where the Spirit lives and works, And life in the body depends on the Spirit. The Spirit is one, Paul says, who who gives difference, who gives giftedness and abilities to his people. Verse 7 says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To each one, the Spirit gives a a certain manifestation of the body's life that then we hold as a gift for the rest of the body. So it means that if we're going to live out unity, we can't do it on our own. We can't just say, vive la différence, okay, we're different, this is great. I mean, we can say that, and hopefully we do. But to actually play it out, we need to depend on the Holy Spirit. We need to say, Lord, how have you formed me? And how can I help the other members of the body to be one together and to serve you faithfully? So that's, that's a prayerful dependence upon the Spirit. And then, of course, we need to value all members of the body. All the members aren't the same. That would be uniformity. No, there's diversity within this unity. And so the, the members, the pieces of the puzzle, if you will, that are to constitute the fabric of the church, they are designed to fit together and Our job is to value all the members of the body. That's that's verses 21 to 25. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The foot can't say to the head, I don't have any need of you, vice versa. There's a valuing of all members of the body. And when that happens, then Paul says, There would be no division in the body, 
the members would have the same care for one another. But there's got to be a valuing of all the members. And finally then, we need to understand that this difference, this diversity given by the Spirit of God, by divine intention, this is given to us so that we can seek the common good. I've seen, I've seen discussions of the giftedness of believers. And there's times when, when you suspect that the reasoning is we should, we should use our gifts because in doing so, we will be personally, spiritually fulfilled. Now, uh, there's some truth in that. <laughs> like Eric Little, you know, when his sister is concerned about him running in the Olympics and, uh, and concerned that it's going to divert him from becoming a missionary to China, which he eventually became. If you remember that Chariots of Fire movie, uh, <clears throat> Little's reply is, uh, I know God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. It's a great line. Uh, so, so there, his giftedness, including his physical prowess in running, did make him sense that God was pleased with him. So there's, there's a blessing to using our giftedness for others. But beyond that, there's something much more important, and that is this idea of seeking the common good. This is what we're called to in the body of Christ. We are given, each of us, a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's what Paul says. I don't know if you can see this, this cartoon. I, I found it kind of helpful to think about this week. Uh, here is a, uh, here's a little town along a river, and the river has been dammed up substantially. I kind of got thinking about the Johnstown flood, you know? Remember what happened there? Uh, this is the common good. This dam provides, uh, what, hydroelectric power? Recreational opportunities? Flood control? All kinds of good things coming from that dam for the common good of the people who live down here in the valley. But you'll notice there's, there's some cracks in the dam. That doesn't look very good. Seek the common good, verse 7. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And I've been gifted, and you've been gifted for life in the body, the one body, seeking the good of others. But we have to be diligent because there's many things that distract us from seeking that good. And when, when things distract us, what things? Well, 
lots of opinion issues that get pushed up to higher levels, right? Politics? No. COVID? Masks? Vaccines? You can't imagine anything that would threaten the common good, can you? But so it is, friends, and, and the cracks are where the enemy works to destroy the common good. And the result is disaster for the people who live in the town. All right, so two takeaways, questions to think about. How has God gifted you to contribute to the life of the body? Because he has. How has God gifted you? And what can you do, what can I do to improve our contribution to the common good? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that with all of our differences, we can come back to this reality that you've called us together to be a body, a body where all the parts are important, designed by you, empowered by you, that we might function together for the common good, not only our own good, Lord, but the good of the world, so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior. Lord, will you work in our midst, work in each one of us to build up the common good, to be the body of Christ in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.